Okay, let me start with a sound check. How's that, Ginny? How's the sound? Is it okay? Um, and we'll do one feedback test. Given that it's not going to be perfect, we know that. Um, good enough for now? Okay. Thank you. I have two things that I'd really love to do with you this evening. And one of them is to share some ideas that may be of service. That would be my wish. And the other is just to sit here with you. Um, without any ideas. <laughs> Although there'll always be some ideas right? no. popping up here and there. I mean, just sit here with you in silence. I would kind of really like that. And I don't think it's only my laziness um, in sharing and kind of being asked in this teacher seat to articulate, right? That's supposedly what a teacher does, at least these kind of teachers. I know there's many, many kinds of teachers in this world, but so far the ones I've seen at Dharma centers usually articulate something with words. <laughs> Funny, isn't it? <laughs> Although I'm much um, supported by a teacher, German teacher, he's an old man now, and I think it was here many years ago when he came and sat here, looked slightly different then. And apparently he was silent for a while. And then he said to everybody, sorry, Holy Spirit's not at home tonight. <laughs> and he walked off. <laughs> so I, I use, I, you know, I have him as a image in my mind. <clears throat> so I don't know if the Holy Spirit's at home or not. Um, and there are some ideas I would love to share. I was in, inspired to share this. I was very moved. Actually, I'm, I have to say I'm very, uh, I want to thank you for the small group meetings and the work and the way people come forward so sincerely in your richness and differences. It's really, it's really a privilege. Thank you. And the other day, somebody said in a small group, um, this person has practiced a long time and they were in a t tight spot and were kind of a bit frustrated and uh, 
kind of there was a lot of energy coming, but it was kind of a bit confined. Excuse me. Pull it up a bit. There we go. And in there, a moment of exasperation said, I need a bigger story. And I don't know exactly what that person was referring to, but it made me think about stories and bigger stories. And I want to share a few ideas tonight about stories and ones that lead onward towards the lessening of suffering and stories that we might be harboring that lead towards more suffering or a kind of boomeranging back on ourselves, where we get caught in loops, either individually or collectively. So in a way, it's following on from this theme of view last night that Akinshino picked up and shared with us. The attachment to view, the clinging to view, is one of the great attachments. And when we cling to the view, we invariably cling to the self who has the view. And there's a whole mass of suffering for us and the other, and the world. There's always a view. To try to not have attachment to views doesn't mean we try and have no views. That would be ridiculous. Of course there's a view, there's always a lens on our experience, there's always a story, a frame that flavors and shapes and circumscribes how we come into the world, how we see our own experience internally and externally. It's the attachment to view that is a condition for suffering. I read recently, I think it was in something by David Suzuki, he was referring to, um, in this case, Mayan stories, so from middle America, (coughs) Mayan stories, where there's a word that describes their function, which I believe is the word ilbal, something like that. And the word ilbal designates that a story can be a precious seeing instrument. A story is an instrument, it's a view. It affects our instrument when we have such a story. And it can be a precious seeing instrument for coming into the world. But it is not necessarily so, right? Some stories we carry are not necessarily precious seeing instruments. They are lenses that have been forged in our body and soul and heart and mind and whatever we would like to call ourselves as this instrument of perception. They have been formed in that way and do not always lead onward to the lessening of suffering. So if I make it really personal, for a moment, for our looking in our own mind. What is 
fascinating as you study your mind and you see, you'll see this and maybe you have seen this, that the story and the view that shapes our lens of coming into the world and coming in to see ourself is also part of shaping what we see. There is no view independent of that which is seen. So if I have a view that I has long been a story that has long been one of my stories, and I'll go right to the heart of some of these really tricky ones we work with. Let's say I have a view or a story that there's something wrong with me. And I say this one because I know it myself, and I know many of us here have that some t- somewhere, not, not necessarily everyone, but have that somewhere in some form or another that many end up believing is a kind of bottom card. You know, I could see this and this and this and the world unfolds and there's love and there's a bit of meta, but the truth is there's something wrong with me, <laughs> right? Um, even if intellectually we wouldn't believe that, somehow we bump into a place and that lens, that story, that seeing instrument, in a sense it has, is not so precious in that moment that seeing instrument looks into ourselves and into the world, and somehow we see evidence of that idea. We see evidence. The story almost is borne out. Do you recognize that? You know, so I'm, I have the story, there's something wrong with me. My attention is just kind of wandering like a, you know, let's like a, say like an octopus ten- tentacle just kind of roaming around, hasn't kind of sort of bonded to anything yet. It's just kind of roaming around and there's just this vague feeling that there's something wrong. Maybe it's just something unpleasant, but I haven't seen that it's unpleasant. And it's kind of looking for evidence and where is it and what is it and what's wrong? Something's wrong, where is it? And it sort of tentacle turns back around. It's like, oh, that's it. It's me. Got it. Feels terrible. Strangely gives us a bit of stability. Right? You know, once you've established, those of you who know this, once you've established what's wrong with you, um, it, it gives us a little tent peg in the ground to kind of have a little bit of a foundation in a strange and painful kind of a way. But it doesn't lead onward. It isn't a precious seeing instrument. This instrument of perception that we are, that we can cultivate the bhavana, in that moment has um, picked up a story and found evidence of that story and seen into the world in that way, and it creates more suffering. This we can start to see in our practice. This we can start to see that the view and the story that may have long been established is not a given. Stories are not given, meaning they're not... Uh, fixed, they're not real, they're empty. We can learn to see as that searching mind looks around for evidence of who I am and whatever it's doing, even if we think we're great. Whatever it's doing, we can stop. And with body as body, as we deepen into our here-ness, the mind slows down, the emotionality and the, 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 the existential angst in that whole looking can be seen. And that which sees the story and sees the view 
is not bound by the view. Now, this, this will take time very often with some of these very kind of fundamental core stories that we have, that, we, that shape, flavor, and circumscribe what we see. Right? But we start, and none of you would have stayed here this long on a retreat, without seeing what is more than that, without seeing what is more than our story and our lens that is the one that is the default, or many, the default lenses that are shaped that do not lead onward. Right? You will have had enough experiences, enough uh, intuitions, enough senses of more than that familiar and typical sense of self and that familiar story that shapes, that flavors, shapes, and circumscribes what we can see. So I want to look at um, a story which I've spoken a little bit about, but just unpack it a little bit further. Um, That also may be a case of needing a bigger story. And this is one of our modern stories. It's the worldview. Many views are easier to see. If I have my political views or my views about this or that or the other, sometimes they come out as thoughts, they're declarative, I can see them, hopefully. And while I might still be attached to them, I might be able to reflect, oh yeah, they're views, even though they are right, you know, right? Um, Remembering it's the attachment to views, there will be views. Some views are actually harder to see, like some of these insidious self-views that come and shape my lenses. So do you know what, you know, I told this story in the group the other day, there I am on my first retreat, I didn't even know I had a view that I was bad, I actually thought I was good, but sometimes that was shielding the underlying more pernicious view that actually I was bad, which is why I was so concerned about being good, partly. Um, And there I was in the meditation center and I was a morning bell ringer and um, I was a bit nervous at this funny new culture in this funny place so I rang the bell really quietly in the morning at wake-up time so I wouldn't wake anyone up <laughs> um, I was kind of shy and I you know, like you know it was all quiet and it's a funny bunch of people and they drank herb tea and I there was no t- anyway so I <laughs> I rang it quietly, and then the ne- one morning there was a note on the board that says, to the wake-up bell ringer. And because we're quiet, because there was nowhere to discharge it, my, and my octopus antenna, I didn't see it like that in that moment, went, <coughs> that's me, and I've done something wrong. Oh, yes, oh dear. <laughs> oh, dear. The good thing is we start to see it right? That's the good part. I don't think I'm especially more neurotic than everybody else. The good part is we start to see it, right? And that means I start to feel, right, that that isn't just a view. That story isn't just something that, you know, view doesn't just come from your head. That peculiar idea that there's a head apart from a body and that there's even a view apart from a body is simply a product of not understanding the body well enough, yet. As Richard Rorty, the, a modern 
don't know if you'd call him a philosopher, I guess so, would say uh, that, that um, if the body had been easier to understand, nobody would have ever invented the idea of a mind, <laughs> right? That in a way the, the mind, and now this is a little bit more confirmed in the modern neuroscience, of in a way the thinking part, the, the cognitive part, like the sort of... Uh, the image is given of um, a fern. You know how a fern starts with a spore, like a little kind of black and white, tiny little spore like that. And the image is given that that spore of intention, not doing anything, doesn't exist. It's ready there as an intention in the, in the sort of deep, emotional, visceral core of the body. And with if it's a well-rehearsed... Um, story, that spore unfolds itself through the body, heart and mind. But the bit we see, the bit we get conscious about is the bits at the end of the fronds, the thoughts that look like the things on their own, right? Yeah. So it's a whole piece. So there I was thinking there's something wrong with me. Didn't know I had that view yet. It's not always nice being on a retreat. You actually, is it? It's like you get to, <laughs> it's like the process of freeing up means we confront the things that really aren't very free. It's like I didn't want to see that I had that view. And not just view. View sounds like it's kind of clinical and workable, doesn't it? But it's a whole kind of body, painful, emotional. Am I safe now in my community because I didn't wake everyone up? They might have got fully enlightened. It's probably my fault. <laughs> blah, 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 blah. Right? So that story, not very edifying, doesn't lead onward. But what does lead onward is stopping, sensing the body, and seeing the view and the story that's operating. And that's what starts to free us up. That, where we get the sense of the more than me, the more than I have currently and previously conceived of myself as. Right? That's, that gives us that beginnings of the faith and the trust. Oh, there's more here. And our faith in the Dharma, either quickly or slowly, get some traction. There's more here for me to see. It leads onwards. I want to know that. Right? So those more insidious views, I'm going to look, or insidious meaning in this case, very well entrenched views, stories. And one such story is our modern worldview story. Um, and a worldview isn't just something that you can just sort of look at, look through that lens of that view at the world and take off when you don't really want it, unless you're not attached to it, right? And not being attached to it isn't just an intellectual decision. I'm not attached to the modern worldview. I'll, I'll say a little bit about it. I'm not attached to that view. We can't just intellectually decide not to be attached to that view. As you know, you cannot just intellectually decide to not be attached to views of yourself. Can you? I mean, if you can, you'd have done it all by now, and we could have gone home a few days ago. <laughs> right? It's, it's not, you can't just sort of do that. You can't just flip that. It's an embedded, it's an embedded story. It's an embedded lens, right? These, these views, and in this case, I'm looking at the modern worldview, reaches in, into our fabric and forges our lenses. Our lenses, the way we see this instrument of perception. Will it be a sacred 
or what was that word I used? Precious, a precious seeing instrument. And to be a precious seeing instrument, we do well to see which views and stories we are attached to. Because the attachment invariably um, locks us down, locks us in, binds us. So the story reaches in and forges our lenses. And the view itself, as you will see with your own body as you look into the views of self, that view configures our psychic structures, so the way those ferns unfold and how they unravel in me. They inform my somatic experience, my patterns of sensing, and the way I interact with the world. So a view is never neutral. It acts upon and shapes our perception. The Buddha in his time did well, (laughs) did incredibly well, to challenge some of the stories and views of the time, right? to uh, question some of the attachment to certain views about rites and rituals, about people's place in the cosmos, about how you got a better rebirth and how you, you know, what the goal of the path was, many things. Challenged those views of the era that were probably not probably, I'm guessing, probably were not questioned because one of the functions of an era when you were in it is that we believe our myths and stories as truths. That's part, you know, we look back in history and go, wow, they believed that. Or whoever they were, our ancestors, they believed that. And now we know how things really are, right? One of the prides and the hubris of any era is that we, and I could say one of the hubris and pride of the self, is that I don't see that my views are stories and views about myself. I, I, I think they're real. They feel real. They ha- seem to have real consequences. But something yet hasn't been seen. Something in this precious instrument of perception has not been questioned, and cultivated, right? This is our work, the bhavana, the bhavana. One author that I, who, who wrote beautifully about this, I said, uh, worldview includes beliefs, it includes myths, it includes interpretations, it includes assumptions, And all those together shape and, listen to this, I I like how he puts it, shape and work the world's malleable potentials in a thousand ways of subtly reciprocal interaction. I'll say that again. That these worldviews shape and work the world's malleable potentials in a thousand ways of subtly reciprocal interaction. If we bring that to then how the Buddha spoke about the world, from the Buddha's perspective, there is no world that exists independently. The mind and the world co-arise, right? 
So our way of seeing, our instrument of perception and how it's cultivated can either be a precious seeing instrument or not. It can either lead to more suffering or away from suffering. But there will always be a story about the backdrop of our life, how things come to be, what, what constitute, constitutes meaning, what ways of knowing are allowed to tell us what constitutes meaning what the cosmos is, what its origins are. There is always a cosmology standing at the beginning of any era's narrative, including the scientific narrative. So let's look a little bit <clears throat> about at this story, that just like the story of thinking there might be something wrong with me, or whatever other self-beliefs you have, that may be here, deep in the, as, a, as, as a spore, in the emotional, visceral core of our being, our matter. So I'm not going to unpack it thoroughly. Probably many of you know, could say this better than I. I'll offer some of the frames that you can think and see as you hear them if you take these as an absolute truth or as a story. Story doesn't mean it doesn't have an impact. There's always a story. Story has profound impact. Story doesn't belittle something. Story does not uh, make it lesser. But if we're interested in unattaching to views, if the views are allowed to loosen enough that we do not have to adhere, bond, glue, and live from within that story, then we do well to look a little bit at what constitutes some of the story. So as you hear some of its um, premises and ideas, see where they land in you. And I invite you to hear this as a story. It's it's it's, It's a story that's borne much fruit, and it's a story that when it's taken as truth is a disaster. So sense your body and bring to the listening of the bedtime story, it's, it's, it's bring your heart, bring your mind, bring your body, bring your flesh, bring your blood, bring your imagination, bring your instinct for what's not obvious, bring your loving heart, bring what you care about, about yourself and the world as you sit at the table, and let yourself hear and see how this story lands. So what constitutes the story of our modern worldview are certain principles. One is the fabulous story of the origin that still stands. Amazing story. Billions of years ago, there was a big bang and a planet emerged. Isn't that a great story? (laughs) No one can really explain that as such. But it's a fabulous story that somehow we think we're super sophisticated. Well, I don't know if you think that, but we kind of sometimes have a little bit of pride that that's a more superior uh, empirical story than some other stories that have been around. Or do you, it's like, yeah, that's right, yeah. In this story, the... There is a separation between the subject, the subject self, you, the instrument of perception, and the object, what is seen. 
that's part of the story. That's how we get knowledge properly in that story, by making that separation. Can you feel that? Just feel the effects of that lens, that story, that view. Because that will come into our practice, come into our daily life. We can't just intellectually say, oh, excuse me, I don't want to be bound by that story. We have to work where it's, our lens is forged with that story, many of us. In this story, there's a division between the subjective self and the objective external world. So first one was the human self and the objective world. Here's the subjective self. I'm a subject and everything outside me is kind of, is not a subject. The things outside of me, and maybe the other humans, and if you're, maybe the other animals, but the other things aren't subjects. They're just stuff you can do stuff with. In this story, the cosmos is impersonal. It's indifferent to our process. It is mechanistic and it is without purpose. So no matter how deep and beautiful our aspiration, no matter the extent of our awakening, the depth of our service in the world, our love of our people and all peoples, however deep and wide that goes, the backdrop is still essentially kind of meaningless. It was a bit of a random event how it came here. And so the best I can do is live well. Another part of this story is that all meaning and meaningfulness is only given by the human. Humans invent meaning. There's no meaning intrinsic in this cosmos. Now, when I say that, I'm not trying to dismiss this view and give another one that's its binary opposite. This is about loosening the edges of the story, right? Loosening the edges, not trying to adopt another one, although that can be helpful and interesting and beautiful, but to lead onward with our feet in this soil, in this era and this time, with these timeless teachings. Don't just plump as I might if I think there's something wrong with me and the view arises I'm bad and then I scramble for evidence to try and be good and now I'm a good self. Trying on another self-view. Scrambling to pick that up and try that on. No, can we hang out if any of this loosening and softening of this story is happening for you. Let's hang out with that together, right, together, and see where it takes us. In this view, um, in this view, part of the pride of this view is that to impute any enchantment in the cosmos, any intelligence to the things of this cosmos is deluded, is naive, um, is something to be outgrown, is something for children, and will be outgrown once we have the proper critical reasoning. In this view, the world is full of things which the human acts upon from a position of conscious autonomy. 
In this view, the world no longer has pre-given meanings. And in this view, the, the cosmos is no longer informed by numinous powers, by sacred ends. And so, consequently, as is spoken about, and Max Weber spoke, this modern world is a disenchanted world. It's a disenchanted story. This was an important story. It was, it must have been exhilarating in this overthrowing in the European Enlightenment era. Would have been exhilarating to overthrow some of the dogma and entrenched story and narrative of the religious authorities of the time. Absolutely fresh, <laughs> leading onward. A precious seeing instrument. But to see it as a precious seeing instrument is good. To see it as the truth is unacceptable. And as one spokesperson said, the achievement of human autonomy has been paid for by the experience of human alienation. So as that separate subject comes into being, and it's not that we should not have that, there's something incredible about that autonomy, that agency, that self that has arisen. Yes, we get into all kinds of sticky messes, but that's important. But if we can hold that self and loosen around the edges the worldview in which that self has come to be, where might we go together with our practice to let this instrument be shaped as the precious seeing instrument? So that view arose at the same time, as probably many of you know, as the um, evolving of, uh, or evolving, as the, certainly in the vocabulary you can see, more self-referencing starts to come. So that worldview and vocabulary in English, let's say, because this is a very European perspective, vocabulary in English starts to have words like self-conscious and self-determined and self, you know, these kinds of words didn't exist before. But this disenchanted cosmos seems to impoverish the collective psyche, where the values are, the value and our imagination for what is more than us, when it's not allowed to spill out into the cosmos, can often be captured. Maybe we have places in our life where that is beautifully channeled, but it can also be captured, our value and our imagination, by the marketplace that gives us a more that we can seek and have. And finally on this, To assume that the, that the entire universe, and, and you may not, right? But remember, we vote with our attention. <laughs> we may not intellectually consent, but we'll, we'll vote with our attention of how we, how we walk around and how we touch things. To assume the entire universe 
is actually a soulless void in which us as humans somehow miraculously have this multidimensional consciousness that somehow, somehow the story is that this amazing consciousness that we have is still not completely, not explained and is some kind of anomalous accident that arose here. This reflects, as one author says, a long and invisible inflation on the part of the modern self. Right? A long and invisible inflation. So... We'll have inflation confessions in a minute. Right? We can, if we have that, that when we look out on the world, where our, we might feel our loneliness, our non-belonging, our alienation, our, the crises in loneliness in this era are documented like never before. Crises of meaning and meaninglessness are also documented that wouldn't have been a question for my ancestors not that long back. The crises, as one commentator puts it, of this era, the crises of misplaced desire. Not knowing what to do with that desire for more. Yes, we can desire the path, we can desire to awaken. This, this is a place for our desire. And in that awakening, what will we come in contact with? We will see this view. And if there is a desire to move through and beyond, to know more, in a way that, in the best case, science is allowed to want that more, right? Can we have that for our practice? Can we have that to open the lenses of perception, to see where we go together? As one modern, uh, as one Think, I think he's current physicist, puts it, Carlo Rivelli. And feel this if this is true for you. In your best moments of practice, in your best moments of practice, when your spiritual instinct tells you there's more here to see, there's more here for me to move into. He puts it this way. There are frontiers... And when you hear the word frontiers, don't limit that idea to any particular phenomenon. There are frontiers where we are learning and our desire for knowledge burns. They are in the most minute reaches of the fabric of space, at the origins of the cosmos, in the nature of time, in the phenomenon of black holes and in the nature of our own thought processes. Here on the edge of what we know, in contact with the ocean of what is unknown, shines the mystery and beauty of the world. And it is breathtaking. Here on the edge of what we know, in contact with the ocean of, the un- of what is unknown, shines the mystery and beauty of the world. And it is breathtaking. The world, from the Dharma perspective, co-arises with the mind. 
our frontiers are not only in the equations through the instruments that can see far. These frontiers are in every moment that you contact and breathe out. Mindfully breathing out. (coughs) Staying. Noticing if your story or your lens limits where you can go. What might be known Breathing in. And breathing out. So what happens for you if any of this is ringing bells? Or if any of this is peaking your antennae. Whether we recognize ourself where our sense of meaningfulness is limited because the story limits it. Or where our daring to see in new ways is limited because the lenses are faithful and attached to a story that we may have even moved beyond in philosophy and science, but still holds sway in the instruments that have been made of all who have inherited the marvelous and terrifying legacies of this view. So what happens now? And now is only now, right? It's not like, oh, blimey, what am I going to do after the retreat? Oh, now I've got to think about my worldview. Right? No, now, now, now. The Dharma, the timeless Dharma is only here and now. Leading onwards happens only here and now. It doesn't happen in a minute. It's only here and now. It's inviting investigation, leading onwards, seeable here and now. Now, with your eyes open or your eyes closed as you sense your body, can you allow this whole instrument of perception, yes, your eyes if you have eyes that see, yes, your ears if you have ears that hear, your heart, your nose, your smell, your touch, your mind, and the thoughts not only as, yes, it's a really helpful view, thoughts as secretions of the brain, it's a very helpful view, helps us to not take it so personally, but thoughts also as this kind of unfolding nature that, that has a, like a fern, just unfolds itself and there they are, it's not me or mine, it belongs to the nature of things. I don't have to take, I don't have to blame myself for the kinds of thoughts that arise in my mind and the kinds of limits to the views, but that which is mindful and can stop and see and breathe out, that which sees the view. 
hard to see a view, isn't it? How can you see a view? Because the very point about a view is you're seeing through it. So how do you question a view? Right now, sense your body, please, with me. And maybe this is the bit where I got, get to do what I wanted to do. <laughs> Let's sit. Don't close your eyes yet. I mean, unless you really want to. Sit and sense your body. Sense your fleshy backside dropping her, his, their weight into the earth. That idea of stealing ourselves, we're pulling ourselves up and away from this mysterious, marvelous, I believe William James called this aboriginal suchness. Not pulling ourselves out of that. Your imagination, your body, your original, aboriginal suchness. Yes, your bright mind, your relational heart, your instinct. Let the colors beige. (laughs) It's a good thing. It's a really good thing about centers uh, like this. We can't, because it's, you know, like in this sense, like a muted color or not a really exciting color like that's deliberate, I'm pretty sure. So we can't just do the enchantment that comes out of the sense contact and the attachment to that. Red, why don't they paint it red? It would be so much better in here if they painted it red. Right. But let that color come to your eyes. Let your eyes be available. And don't go out to seek it. Let it come to you. Let it impress upon not just your visual eyes, but the eyes of the instrument, of your body. There are no physical eyes separate from the rest of this perceiving, intelligent subject. And I'm not trying to get you to have a particular kind of perception, not at all. Perceptions are empty, meaning they are flexible, meaning they are not written, they are not given, they are not doctrine. There are perceptions that lead onward, And there are perceptions that lead to more suffering. Allow the color to come to you. Sense, do you still have your belly? Do you have your breath? Can you let the hard part of the story where in all that arrival of this very individuated self, Let him, her, them soften. Not because there's anything wrong with you. There isn't. There so isn't. But allow yourself to embed. Breathing out, flesh softens. 
Let yourself feel if it's true for you, your desire. Not your desire to have and accumulate and amass, and, but your desire for leading onward. Your desire for more than your heart and mind yet knows, our heart mind yet knows. Because what allows the Buddha to sit under the tree that night and reach his hand to the earth is a passionate man with a desire and an instinct that there is more to be known, that can be known. But your ears, and not just your physical ears, but your whole body as hearing instrument, hear the hum of whatever it is that hums in here. And in between the hum, the silence. And through the hum, the silence. And the hum taking nothing away from that silence. And you let this whole instrument hear. And can you listen deep into that silence? I don't know what it's like when Carlo Rivelli studies black holes, if he does. But there has to be some kind of open mind there. Some kind of not knowing but wanting to know. for you one poem from a Zen nun that I would remind myself of very regularly in my practice on retreat like this. And I don't know if any of you have this experience, but right now, play with the poem. If you have this experience, and I would sometimes love to sit late into the night. I don't mean I would stay up all night, not typically. But when it gets quiet in here, and the day has quietened. And the busyness of the traffic on, not that it's that busy, has, has quietened. The residents of Barry have gone to bed. And it can be dark, there can be, sometimes the lights are dim in here. And there's a darkness, almost palpable touchable, allowing that to make an impression on you, that rich, deep, dark. And she would, she said, she must have been 66 or 67, I guess. She says, For 66 years, 
these eyes have beheld the changing scenes of autumn. Tell me no more about moonlight. I have already heard enough. Just listen to the sound of the pines and the cedars in a forest where no wind blows. Tell me no more about moonlight. I've already heard enough. Just listen to the sound of the pines and cedars in a forest where no wind blows. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.